This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are here with Jamie Geller, celebrity chef, television producer, publishing mogul, coming to us, I believe, from Israel. Is that correct? Yes, Welcome. from the heart of Israel, just outside of Jerusalem. Beautiful. Welcome, Jamie. How are you? I'm doing amazing, my Ari. Thank you for having me. It's such an honor to be a Jew that you should know. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely an honor to have you. What we've been doing with all our guests is really trying to get to know, as the title does say, the individuals and, and not just their professional accomplishments and achievements, which is, of course, important and a major part of the story, but also the person behind that, the background behind those accomplishments. And so let's just start with that, Jamie. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up, how you grew up, if you grew up, perhaps. Tell us a little bit about your, your background story. Sure. I'm from a suburb just outside of Philly, so very proud Philadelphian over here. And I grew up in a conservative Jewish household. Very pro-Israel. We would go to synagogue definitely at the high holidays and then sporadically throughout the year. And very strong Jewish identity. Lovers of Israel, Zionistic, marching in the Israel Day parades, visiting Israel frequently. And in general, uh, like a happy, nice suburban household. It sounds like Judaism was a strong influence in the home, but not necessarily a strictly observant home. Would that be an accurate statement? Very accurate. I went to uh, the Salman Schechter Day School for elementary and then to a high school called Akiba Hebrew Academy, which is now um, Barrack in Philadelphia. So very strong Jewish identity um, in terms of culture, in terms of ideology, but not an observant Jewish household. Kosher style. Kosher style. <laughs> Got it. Got to love those Hebrew national hot dogs. Yes, totally. <laughs> I don't know if those make the cut in, in your gourmet, you know, uh, food world, but. <laughs> we love hot dogs. We do love them, actually. We're barbecuing tonight, actually, but we're making burgers tonight. Okay, sign me up. So, Jamie, what, where did you go from there? It sounds like you, you know, obviously graduated high school. I assume you went to university. What was that experience like? Where did you go? Uh, my parents were immigrants to this country. Uh, they came all... Now I'm in Israel, so not this country, but the country that you're sitting in, into America. My parents are from Transylvania, and my grandparents are before they got married after they had my parents. My parents immigrated in 1964. So we were first-generation American. My yeah. father never graduated high school. My mother never went to college. And it was like a very big dream for them that my sister and I should become accomplished career women, you know, opportunities that were never available to them in the old country and certainly Jewish friends. It was, you know, a new thing for our family at this time. So it was very important that we go to college. And so I headed off to NYU. Wow. And um, my love was journalism. The truth is, I really wanted to be a celebrity, but I didn't know how to sing. I can't carry a tune at all. I'm terrible. And I can't act. And so I was like, how do I become famous? And I decided I wanted to become a journalist like um, a Barbara Walters or a Diane Sawyer, Katie Couric, Oprah Winfrey because this is like subject matter I could study but at the same time I could become famous in my own right while interviewing famous people so wow. that's how I ended up at NYU and even though I looked at Northwestern and Syracuse which all had amazing journalism programs I knew that internships were the key to getting in the door in this industry and so I wanted to be in New York or LA like a big city that would allow me to intern both throughout the college, the semesters during the year, in addition to just summer internships. Sure. It's too bad when you were in college, there was no Kardashian. They created a whole different path to celebrity. You wouldn't have had to spend, you know, 60 grand a year on, on NYU. <laughs> 
Totally, totally. My father would probably wishing for the Kardashians sooner. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you went, uh, you went to journalism school at NYU, and that transitioned into what kind of opportunities for you? Where, where did that go? Well, I think it's important to note that I did double major, and I only mentioned that because my other major was Hebrew language and literature. Oh. I had had this like, really strong set, like I said, Jewish identity and love of the language. And I just thought like, instead of taking tons of random courses to make up like all the credits I needed, let me focus it and continue this great education that I had and enhance that a bit. So that was the double major, but it was just more my, because that's where my interests and passion and spoke to my soul. Because of my career, I started interning my first year, uh, that first summer at CNN. Wow. And I interned for a called Showbiz Today, which is, I think it's now called Showbiz Tonight, but it's like the Access Hollywood or the Entertainment Tonight in it. And so while I was still in college, I actually covered the MTV Music Awards, the VH1 Fashion Awards, the Daytime Emmys. I was on every red carpet in New York City. I was on set of every uh, show that was shot in New York City or every film set New York City. And I started that first summer and then I continued throughout the years at NYU. I would load up all my coursework on Tuesdays and Thursdays so that I could intern Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at CNN. And so they finally said to me, when are you graduating already? You know, even though I was acting as a producer and getting, you know, like college credits for it, we want to offer you a full-time job. So I graduated in three years. I condensed all my coursework so that I could start full-time at CNN. So I graduated then and uh, moved on to CNN. I'm sure your father was grateful for your compressed <laughs> timetable. Saved him uh, quite yes, a bit. Yeah. yeah, he was. I'm so lucky not to have had college loans. I'm so lucky that he really is an immigrant, worked so hard to do everything he could. All he cared about was our education. And without a college degree, he sent us there. No loans and no scholarships. And, and yeah, so... I'll remind him that I did that in three years. Hopefully he'll be uh, happy. <laughs> so he, he owes you about $75,000. But uh, Oh, you know, God forbid. I owe him back. I'm like waiting for the day that I could pay him back for all that investment in, in my tuition, in my uh, education. That's the, I think GW and NYU were often competing for the most expensive education in the country. It's psychotic. And that's my problem. Usually my dad always says I have like champagne taste on a beer budget. Yeah. And like, of course. Had to go to NYU, you know, like had to be there. So. There you go. So now, do you have any formative Jewish experiences at NYU beyond, you know, maybe studying some Hebrew poetry in your second major? It there- wasn't really fair, by the way, because all of the other kids in that class were Israelis who were oh. just there for easy days. And I'm like struggling, but... Yeah, they, they um, were there for the easy A, yeah. Yeah, I tried very hard. I tried to go at the time. Um, to, there was no more on campus. At that time, um, I went to Abad and uh, I went to the Hillel. And I tried the Hillel once, twice. I didn't really connect to it. And so very sadly, my mom was freaking out because she really felt like for the first time I was in this environment without that little strong sense of Judaism carrying me through. I did not connect to the services, their high holiday services and the programming that they had. And so it was very hard for me. It was sort of a, a darker time in terms of my Jewish growth. Sure, which is ironic being in, you know, in the heart of New York City, but sometimes can be in a place with tremendous riches and still, so to speak, impoverished in your own right, unless you find the right avenue. I think it's very true, and especially the big city like New York City and every other city, there's so much of both. There's so much of that inspiration and opportunity as it relates to now we're talking about, you know, of anything. And at the same time, there's the opposite happening. Everything is happening in the city and it always depends which way pulled and it's the first time that I was away from home and the first time that I was exposed I went to like a Jewish day school to other people and cultures and and I did try but because there wasn't something like more 
I just did not connect in the way that I wanted and was hoping to. So I guess you took this job for CNN, hard to say no to them. And where did that take you? So my mom is basically freaking out because like on one hand, she is toast of the town, you know, that I'm at the Oscar interviewing, whether it's Michael Douglas or Gwyneth Paltrow or wherever. And I interviewed every, I mean, every run from Beyonce to Eminem to Christina Aguilera and Red Hot Chili Peppers, like on and on and on the list goes. It's you're, just you're dating yourself now, Jamie. You know. <laughs> I know. Beyonce's still in. Beyonce's Christina still Aguilera, in. you know. Uh, Christina, well, hello. I just saw her pose in a July 4th uh, selfie on on social media. And Beyonce just had twins, so I'm still relevant. So really? Okay, Rabbi? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no. So my mom's freaking out. Like, I would not just go to these events and these award shows, but then I would go to the after parties and the after after parties. And she's like, after all of this, I wanted you to have this career. But if you have no Jewish hubby to show for it, she'll feel like a total failure. Right. Like, God forbid I should meet the wrong guy in the wrong place. So she started sending me to these Torah classes wow. and in, the, in Manhattan for Jewish professional singles. And, and that's like sort of the beginning of the end. <laughs> Which particular place was it? Yes, I went to Rebitson Esther Young Rice's classes. She should rest in peace. She did amazing work on the Upper West Side for Jewish professional singles. I went to a place called Jewish Enrichment Center. Sure. They do a lot of birthright programming and after birthright and tugly and all of that. Yep. And it was there that I really ignited my spark and my interest in Jewish life and an observant Jewish lifestyle. Like, oh, forget meeting the guys. Like, I just want to become religious. And I started on this path to leading a more religious lifestyle and then eventually met my husband through a matchmaker. Did your mother have buyer's remorse at that point that she sent you to these places? No. And my mother really, I believe, is like, she, first of all, there's no question she's completely spiritual and completely connected to Judaism. And I think in another time and place, she herself would be more religious. And she is so thrilled. Both of her, my sister and I have married Jewish men and we live an Orthodox Jewish lifestyle, my sister in Brooklyn and me in, in Israel. And she is thrilled and thanking God every day. It's nice to hear stories where there's a sense of harmony and even pride as opposed to the discord that sometimes can emerge from different paths that children might take from their parents. So I imagine this Jewish renaissance that you're experiencing is sort of paralleling this professional track that you're on. Where does it take you next? Were you at CNN for a long time? Did you matriculate to, to another place? So I'm at CNN and the show that I work for, I told you it's called Showbiz Today. Showbiz Today. So it's on every day. It's, no, it's not a night program. Now it is. It's, okay. But then it was on every day live at 4.30. And yeah. I decided that I want to observe the Sabbath, take on the Jewish Sabbath, which starts at sundown on Friday night right. and go till Saturday night. So I decided to do this in December. When sundown, it's like at 4 o'clock, 4.10. Right. But my show is live every day at 4.30. So I literally cannot keep my job that point that I decided this is more important to me to be my passion as opposed to my profession. And so I quit CNN. I just pack my bags and I go to Israel to learn what it means to live a Jewish lifestyle. Because even though I decided I wanted to observe the Sabbath, I didn't really know like all that it entailed. So I wanted to go study for a little bit and learn what that life was like. So I'm in a seminary called Neve Yerushalayim, which is in Jerusalem. I'm there for about two and a half, three weeks. And as I'm walking up the mountain, going to one of my morning classes, I get a message on my cell phone from a producer at HBO who says to me, can you be on the set of The Sopranos next week? <laughs> oh, said, the Sopranos sure. already a thing at that point? Yeah. I 
knew what it was at the time. I had actually met this producer. We were both covering, there was a show called Oz, which was a prison show for HBO. And I was covering this part of CNN and she was there at HBO. We got to chit line, we exchanged cards. And at that time I told her like, oh, I was looking for a change, you never know. Like you're just networking. And so she's like, calls me next week. Like, do you want to do, you know, be a freelance producer and, and be on set of the Sopranos? And I was like, I'll be there. Because the truth is, I didn't want to leave my career and everything I had built and everything I'd worked for. I just couldn't see a way to reconcile this live show and live television with my observance. And so at HBO, the job wasn't about live television. As long as I was able to be on set on a Tuesday and, you know, and write and produce and edit my package by the deadline, if I did it the middle of the night, Saturday night or Sunday morning, then that was fine. And I thought, this is the perfect of my cake and eat it too. So after three weeks, I was back in the city at HBO. <laughs> well, I got I to love the irony of The Sopranos being the more religiously compatible show. No one ever said that, but you're totally right. Well, so you worked at HBO for a couple of years? Yeah, so I worked there for many years. I went from a freelance producer to a full-time producer to a writer-producer, a senior writer-producer. They offered me a position to promote to executive producer, like at the age of 25. It was an amazing, amazing experience for me, and they accommodated everything kosher meals. They accommodated my Sabbath observance. I left early on Fridays. There was a miniseries called Angels in America and one of Emma Thompson was one of the lead characters and they flew me to England to interview her and at the time, flight back was on Shabbos and I said, I can't stay. So they accommodated me staying in the hotel the extra night and then flying back after Shabbos and they were amazing, amazing. And so while I'm there, I'm growing in my Jewish observant producer at HBO and I'm going to matchmakers because I'm ready to start that next stage of my life, which is meeting a nice husband and getting married and starting a family. And that's when my career, which was so cool, became a little bit of a like, what do you do? You know, like <laughs> you want to marry someone that is a rabbi that looks like a rabbi. You're a TV producer at HBO. It wasn't even like you said that I'm working for like Nickelodeon or something. I'm like working for HBO. So it was a little bit of a hazard in the dating world. HBO sounds like it could be the, uh, the Hebrew broadcasting organization. I should have said that's what it stands for. Totally. <laughs> and if they knew any different, then they shouldn't call themselves religious, right? Yes, that's it. So at some point, something changed because you became this food maven and this cooking model or whatever it might be. How did that happen? Because nothing that I've heard in your story to this point seems to have anything to do with food. And yet now it seems like everything has to do with food. So how did that transition occur? Well, you're totally right. Nothing to do with food. I mean, I never even used my oven in Manhattan for cooking. I used it for storage, you know, <laughs> like my sweater in my oven, not my pots and pans. I didn't own a pot or a pan. And so basically I, I meet my husband, we get married and he says, what's for dinner? <laughs> I don't know. You tell me, you know, and luckily he did uh, work his way through high school. His high school job was in catering and his father was an amazing cook and worked in catering for many years. And his mother was an amazing cook and his stepmother was an amazing cook. And he literally took me by the hand and took me shopping. And we would shop together as newlyweds and buy things like ingredients. And then we come home and I'd look raw chicken and start freaking out. And he'd like, it's okay, you can't touch a raw chicken, you know, and he'd show me all these, these simple bachelor recipes that he had made as a single guy, and, and then his mother came, and his stepmother came, and they would give me their secret recipes, and slowly, I started to actually be not a total failure in the kitchen, and then I started getting better and better, and eventually, he says to me one day, you should write a cookbook, and that's wow. how that came. 
Yeah. It's quite a jump from being not a disaster in the kitchen to you should write a cookbook. What inspired that epiphany? That is so, you know what? I don't really, you know, my husband, I always call him the idea guy. He has amazing ideas and then I'm left to sit there and execute them. <laughs> and he thought it would be great. He's got his family's amazing cooks. I was cooking all of his family's, you know, recipes. And I wasn't just making them. I was making adjustments to make them easier because I'm not a natural born cook. And because I was still the time a producer at HBO and working these like 14 hour days and commuting. We at that point, we had moved out to a religious community in Far Rockaway, started a three hour commute, very little time to cook. And so it was really like this combination of me doing things quick and simple and easy and doing it well and wanting to record his family recipe. And he just kind of said it. And I was like, you know what? You're right. I should write a cookbook. And so basically, it was the combination of him saying that and the experience of me in the kitchen up to date, and also being pregnant with our first child and not wanting to work in television anymore and not wanting to these long hours and not wanting to commute. And we ourselves had decided that we didn't want to have a TV in our home. It's the home to be built around communication and attention to one another and not TVs. Now it's like you have to have a home free of phones if you want that. But not all these devices kind of around and really just connect to one another on a regular basis. And it just seemed like I'm living this crazy life of no TV, but I'm a TV producer and want to be home more with my child and got willing children. And so I just thought like this would be like a nice little happy kosher career. Just write this little cookbook while my baby's next to me, tummy time and see what comes of it. So you immediately perceived this as a potential career, as a potential revenue generator, not just writing a cookbook, which is kind of ambitious. I mean, you know, it's a crowded market. There's a lot of kosher cookbooks out there. What made you feel like this could stand apart? That this could be something that would actually bring you a, a livelihood, stand apart from the others? And, and perhaps what, in fact, did make it stand out among the crowd? So I think first my entrepreneurial spirit definitely comes from my father. Like I said, he's so super successful in business without a high school education. Like a generation of people think that that happens as much these days, but really, really everything about him just has inspired my entrepreneurial spirit. So that it's just every time I think, I think big. My friends always say like, you know, we're thinking about a job and you're thinking about world domination. Like I just like, that's just like how my mind works. And so I think it's a combination of that and the fact that I thought that the idea was really compelling. Even though there were cookbooks out there, at the time I really felt like it was, and I received all of them at my bridal shower, you know, and as right. wedding gifts. And I think it was all about like, how do you become the Jewish Martha Stewart? How can kosher food and Jewish food be frou-frou and fancy and posh and just take a year and a day to make? And it just, not, none of that resonated with me. What resonated was real food, family food, fast recipes, quick cooking in the kitchen. And there was nothing at that time in the Jewish cookbook world that spoke to fast, simple, quick recipes. So the idea was the book was called Quick and Kosher, Recipes from the Bride Who Knew Nothing. And that was the whole idea fast cooking. It looks good. Uh, we're not sacrificing taste. We're not sacrificing appearances, but it's just kind of real food that's real simple to make. And the idea was it was interspersed with my autobiography and my story about what it's like to become the bride who knew nothing, a Jewish wife, mother, and kosher kitchen, and all the stuff for the first time, and the experiences of being a TV producer, and now being like the producer of my own home. And so that, I just thought it was a good enough story and compelling enough that it would have legs beyond just uh, a cookbook. Yeah, I mean, I, I really hear two threads that, you know, just hearing the story for the first time jump out at me. One of them is that you really directly address, I think, the sense of almost shame 
that a lot of people feel that they can't measure up, you know, when looking at some of these fancy cookbooks and they read them and they're, they're almost like museum pieces, but they're not realistic for a busy person, certainly a busy working mother juggling a career and, and a home. And then they look at these things like who does these, you know, who actually cooks that way um, and sort of tapping into that and almost like explicitly or maybe implicitly telling people that that's okay and you can uh, still have something that's delicious and, and special without piling on the shame and, and feeling unworthy, so to speak. Secondly, this compelling personal narrative that seems to have been threaded throughout the book. And it sounds to me like those were sort of the twin features that, that were really appealing to people. You're totally right. And I just think it's just about being and I'm not talking about the raw food diet, but I'm talking about just like being real with all the mistakes I've made and the mistakes I continue to make and whether it's in parenting or whether it's in pasta, I have flops all the time and just share them. People love to connect. And now there's obviously a way to connect on so much more of a moment to moment basis with social media. But at that time, it was through the written word that you had to actually you know, print the book and publish it, get it out there. And then only right around that time, then blogs started happening. And then now right. the whole world but snapshot of real life that's really what it was it was the beginning of that kind of era by the way i think you may have inadvertently stumbled upon the title of, of an, another book you could write parenting and pasta <laughs> oh yeah that's a good i just came up to me i'm actually working on a memoir now and i'm calling it the bride who knew nothing like okay. and the tagline could be all about parenting and pasta and no, everything no, perfect. i won't even charge my first one's free you okay good <laughs> no royalties necessary so what happened when this cookbook hit the shelves must have been extremely successful. Somehow this mushroomed into sort of a bigger phenomenon around the whole food preparation experience. What happened with that and bring us current as to, you know, what, what's happened since then and, and what that brought you to today and what are you doing today around those things? Sure. Well, the book came out and they printed 10,000 copies. I wanted them to print more, but they were like, who are, are you? Nobody knows who you are. <laughs> And it was sold out like within a week or two. I mean, we put it out right before Hanukkah and you couldn't find a a book on the shelf. People wanted to buy it. I was so upset, of course, because when you go to reprint, it takes months to get them from China, print them and get them from China and everything. But that was the beginning. And then I started getting calls to travel all over the country and all over the world to tell my story. Bride who knew, who knew nothing. And while I went from an, you know, a TV producer at HBO to like a wig wearing kosher cookbook author. And so I told that story. And then I got a few calls to be spokesperson. Uh, oh, before that, I decided cooking videos. I'm a TV producer. Wow. We need to have a kosher cooking show and a Jewish cooking show. So I started those. And I didn't have a website or anywhere to put them out at the time. And so I created them. And then I called H.com. And I was like, could you put my cooking videos you know, on your website? And then I decided to start a website. And then I got calls to be a spokesperson for um, different companies. And so one of those companies I partnered with to create this really robust cooking website. And so that's ajoyofkosher.com, which is what we have here too. And we have over 8,000 free kosher recipes. And every single day we update the site with new recipes and new articles, thousands of articles, hundreds upon hundreds, probably over a thousand cooking videos now. And we do two new videos every single week. Then I wrote another book and then another book. And then we have actually a print magazine that comes out six times a year called Joy of Kosher with Jamie Geller. And I travel all over the world telling my story because now that we moved to Israel, so the story is from HBO to the Holy Land. 
Uh-huh. So I tell that story and that's where you find me here today. What do you consider to have been the impact of this sort of revolution on the Jewish community? I mean, I'm sure you didn't set out to create a movement, so to speak, but it seems like you have developed an entire ecosystem of product and different portals through which people can access this content. What do you feel has been like a, an enduring contribution? Oh my gosh, that's such an intense question. I don't know that I have the answer to that. I've never thought about it in that manner. Um, But I do think that the world has changed as it relates to consumption of food, content, and recipes, pictures, and videos, and entertainment, and media. And it's just been exciting to be part of that. And I think that a lot of times there's a feeling that the Jewish world or the kosher world is like a few steps behind. Like we discovered sushi like 10 years after the world. And I feel that this day and age with digital media the way that it is, it feels wonderful to have been on the cutting edge of that with the rest of the world. And that we were right there, the way the food media has changed. It's great to be right there at pace with that. Shows and with programming and with magazines and social media and website and the searchable database and all of those things. And so I guess that feels really special to be able to be on pace. I'm going to ask you a question from my perspective as a rabbi. We all have challenges and I wonder, do you ever struggle with being ensconced in a career that is wholly wrapped up just in food and something that can easily be either sort of abused or celebrated in and of itself without being kind of elevated to a higher plane, which I guess would be sort of the Jewish approach or perspective. Is that ever difficult? Do you ever feel like just getting totally consumed in physical elements of it? But is is that sort of the occupational hazard of this line of work? So not at all, not in the least bit. I think that that is the issue for anyone doing this outside of the Jewish space. But for us, because everything that we do is grounded in Judaism, it's the opposite. The food that we create is for first and foremost, our most highest traffic time periods are the holidays. These are people coming to celebrate Passover, to celebrate Hanukkah, to celebrate Rosh Hashanah with their families where they might not do anything else Jewish for the rest of the year. So everything that we do is so infused with holiday and family and celebration. And then the week for the people that come to us on a daily or a weekly basis, this is about feeding your family. It's almost inconsequential what the actual recipe is. We keep putting it in there because we keep it for the people that want to be creative in the kitchen and that don't want to get bored. But this is about putting fast, fresh food on the table for your family and everything that dinner time means. It means connecting, turning off the devices, looking at one another, getting together around the table, inspiring conversation, all the content. I started these daily 180s. We did an experiment last month and I'm going to pick them up now again at the end of the summer where we just talk about like something inspirational to get your day going. And, you know, food's like, it's a fuel that we need. You can't live, you know, without it, food and water. But it's just really a means to celebrating life together with your family. And that is our focus, both the everyday and the holiday and all of that. So by nature and by design, we are not what you described. That's the on an issue you might have if you were not part of our organization. But that is what we do day in and day out. Okay, beautiful. Well, I appreciate the uh, strong rejoinder to my uh, contention there. Now <laughs> you want to know how I really feel, Rabbi. <laughs> Very convincing, absolutely. Israel, you're speaking to me from Israel. How did you get there? And if at all, how has that changed what you're doing? How has that impacted your career and the way that you position yourself and what you can offer to the society around you, the community around you? 
So when I was one of my first blind date with my husband, we were set up with a matchmaker, like I told you, he said that he wants to move to Israel. And so I said, well, great, find yourself another girl. Because I love Israel, I support Israel, I'll give money to Israel, I'll travel to Israel, but I ain't moving to Israel. I have this fabulous career and I'm set up in New York and I'm like living in the Big Apple. I mean, who leaves New York City? And he worked on me like water on a rock for like eight years. And we eventually moved to Israel, we made Aliyah, and I became like the spokesperson for Aliyah in Israel. Again, my TV producer background kicked in and I decided we were going to make a real-time, real-life documentary about our Aliyah. So we called it Joy of Aliyah. So you can literally watch it. We would pack and I would shoot it and then we would post it online that night. And then we got on the plane, we hugged all our friends goodbye and got on the plane and I was literally editing while we're on the plane. Then we landed and we posted it on YouTube like the last 24 hours in the plane ride and arriving in Israel. I did that. It just was something I felt that had to be done in a story that had to be told. Nothing to do with food, right? I mean, we were Joy of Kosher, right? So I did Joy of Aliyah. That was the connection. That was that. And overnight, it became a sensation. It had about half a million views of those episodes combined. And people that never knew about us discovered us. And forgetting about the fact that people said that they made Aliyah because of it, and it changed their life. They themselves decided to pick up and leave and move to Israel or start to begin the process of realizing their dream to move to Israel because of that series. It also made, brought Israel to such a forefront of the content that we produce. When I first started, I thought I was doing this for kosher. And the truth is, everything that we do is kosher. But really, it's the Jewish recipes and the Israeli recipes that get the most traffic and the most traction and the most... Uh, interest from all corners of the world. And wow. so now being here in Israel, there's a resurgence in the world of Israeli food. You have Israeli chefs all over the world, whether they're opening a hummusia, it's called La Hummusaria in Madrid, <laughs> or they've got a hummusia in you know New York and, and Miami and Philadelphia, or the, all these Israeli restaurants and everything that's popping up. It's amazing to be here in the heart of where it's all happening and be bringing these classic Israeli foods, Israeli recipes and Jewish recipes it's connecting people to Israel and to their Judaism in a way that like you always hope that food could and would, but when it was just kosher recipes, did not have the same impact as Jewish food and Israeli food. So it sounds like it really almost kind of supercharged what you were already doing. Yes. Has the Aliyah process been a challenge? People have very different experiences. It sounds like you've moved to a suburb of Jerusalem. Yes, we live in Ramat Beit Shemesh, which is just about half an hour outside of Jerusalem. It's been amazing. We're coming up on our five-year anniversary. It's certainly it's challenging. I mean, simple, tiny things. I remember a reporter interviewed me on the flight on the way, and she said, "You like, are you worried about Iran?" I was like, "Really? No, I'm just worried that my kids are going to have friends in school." And to this day, my daily difficulties, last night I had to have conference with the teachers and I get every other word and I understand basically what she's saying and I'm hoping that I have the gist of it, but it feels, it's really difficult to feel like you're such an educated person and you can't express yourself and you can't understand everything. And when it comes to helping your children grow in life and into themselves and in the world, this little big thing, those are where the difficulties lie in terms of the day-to-day -day difficulties of Aliyah and being a, an immigrant that struggles with the language and struggles to understand the culture. And why can't they do it like this? Like, this makes so much sense. No, but this is how they do it in Israel. This is it. This is the culture. And you are foreign to them. And you're not going to impose your style and values and system of doing things onto here. You just got to win in Rome. And so those things are hard. <laughs> well, it sounds like, to me, almost coming full circle because describe your father and your parents as these entrepreneurial immigrants. And lo and behold, that seems to be precisely what you are. 
Oh, that's so crazy. Oh my gosh. Paul's English is better than my Hebrew. I mean, he made his way in English in America. I'm like here working, you know, in English in, uh, in, uh, in America from Israel, but well, yeah, if, if he grew up in the global world that, you know, that you yeah. occupy now, he may not have either. So it's hard to compare eras and I'm sure you're holding your own and doing the best you can over there. And what's nice to hear is how much of an advocate and an ambassador for Aliyah you are, despite being very real about the challenges and about the real difficulties that are inherent to that process. So I think that's heartening to hear a sort of a balanced view, but a balanced view that still emerges on the positive side of the ledger, uh, if you will. Oh, for sure. I would ask you, Rabbi, because you probably get more into this as a rabbi than I do, but I feel like with Aliyah, it's the best thing that we ever did for our family and for our life. And But it doesn't come without its challenges, and I liken it to getting married and liken it to raising children. These are the most amazing decisions you can make, you know, to decide to spend your life married to someone and raising a family. Are they not challenges every single day that are so intense? But would you ever counsel anyone not to get married, not to raise a Jewish family? I mean, these are things, all these incredibly rewarding experiences come with the challenges. It doesn't mean you don't do them. Absolutely. Anything in life that you want to gain from and that you want to really be meaningful is going to be challenging, whether it's cooking or aliyah or (laughs) raising children. Jamie, if you can, just in closing, leave us maybe with one piece of advice or advice for the, the hardworking individual who wants to enhance their Jewish kitchen and bring the joy of kosher into their world. Even maybe for someone like myself, who's cooking repertoire consists mainly of burnt toast. What would you offer to somebody who's just starting out, who's interested in learning a little bit more about kosher, about Jewish cooking in general? Well, I have kind of like two pieces to that. One is it's never, ever too late. You know, my grandmother, as an immigrant to America, got her license when she was 65. And like, she was just tired of having to rely on driving her around. She's like, that's it, I'm going to go. And I remember seeing her doing driver's ed in our neighborhood, a 65-year-old woman. So I feel like it's never too late to open yourself up up to cooking, to the joy of a Jewish lifestyle, and all that it entails. They never, they never think that the boat has sails, because it just never has. And to do it all with a smile. I mean, how can you do anything? Anything can be joyful unless you smile. Sometimes when I'm cooking, I'm stressed. Uh, something's going on with my kids. Whatever, like the recipe didn't come out good, and I'm like banging around the kitchen, like closing the cupboards and close the oven door with gusto. And my husband is just like, smile, breathe. And I feel like when I do that, everything just becomes better. The food comes out better if you're happy when you're making it. And the whole situation seems lighter if you just start to smile and shrug it off and not, you know? So I feel like never too late and try to do everything with a smile and that will up the positivity in your life and open the doors of opportunity for anything that you want to pursue. What a beautiful way to finish and inspiring message. And Jamie, I'd love to give you the opportunity to share any ways that people can find you, whether online or wherever it might be. What would be some of the ways to find out more about your work, your life story, where you've come from, where you're going, and to access some of this incredible content that you've created? Thank you. So everything can be found at joyofkosher.com. And you can follow us on social media everywhere at both Joy of Kosher and Jamie Geller. Thank you, Jamie Geller. Thank you, Joy of Kosher. It's been a joy of Jamie Geller today and uh, really appreciate it. Such an honor. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know.
If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.